and me as a specialist, I'm very acutely aware that no, something is not better than nothing. Because if you, if you take up one of these that is, if you take a bad introductory class, which you have no ability to tell the difference about because you're a beginner, or you, you uh, take the wrong thing from the introductory class, then you end up in this kind of Socratic issue where you think you have knowledge where you don't have knowledge. Welcome to Stoa Conversations. In this podcast, Caleb Ontiveros and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Today's conversation is with Erland McGilvray. Dr. McGilvray received his PhD from the University of Aberdeen, Scotland, in New Testament and Greco-Roman history. He is a historian by training and studies what we can learn about Stoicism from history and what Stoicism can teach us about the ancient world as well. His first book is titled Epictetus and Lay People, A Stoic Stance Towards Non-Stoics, and covers how historical Stoics treated those that were not philosophers. In this conversation, we cover the life, time, and place of Epictetus. This conversation was a real treat for me and is perfect for anyone wanting to learn more about the relationship between the ancient world and Epictetus as a person. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Erlen. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing great. Uh, looking forward to talking with you today. This is really exciting because I love talking about Epictetus, as anybody who listens to this show will know. So it's great to do a deep dive into Epictetus with you. Um, and we've chatted before in the past. We've talked about Epictetus, and I, I thought it would be a great opportunity to bring you on the show and dive into some of, well, Epictetus's philosophy, but also questions around his history, his pedagogy, really um, the reception and role of his school and him as an educator, really all of these things that that you're an expert on. But before we kick things off, for those listening, I was wondering if you could provide an overview of how you got into Stoicism, what really attracted you to Stoicism in the first place? Sure. Well, really by background, I'm a historian, in particular of the classical world, so the early uh, first and second centuries. And I was reading a book, um, it was by Rodney Stark, who's a uh, historian, and he he had a, a little aside in one of his books where he, he, he mentioned how important ancient philosophy was, but how when when scholars sit out to, to study ancient philosophy, they of course, they tend to be philosophers, and they tend to not so much recognise that ancient philosophers were of course in their own historical context and and there were little philosophical bubbles that that needs to be explored just as you would with any other uh with any other historical group to to understand them um and i i just find that a fascinating idea um particularly if, if you're someone who likes research you're always looking for something that hasn't been fully researched um and it, it just struck me as, as a fascinating area so that that took me into that um initially i was attracted to epicureanism as a historical movement, and I, I, I did a master's by research thesis on that, uh, which seemed seemed to go quite well. Um, and and then I thought, right, I'll, I'll carry this on to PhD level, and I'll choose a different group. Um, and I, I, I chose Stoicism for various reasons, and I'm I'm glad I did. I mean, also as I, I know your listeners will, um, I'm, I'm sure know it, it, it's a very helpful philosophy um for life just as just as it was back then uh, as it is now so um i get the advantage of studying a historical movement getting the joy from that and and, and also learning from its from its wisdom which is great as opposed to some of my friends were you know exploring like the 
the ancient Sadducees or, or looking at like ancient sellers of um, various traded goods around the Roman Republic and stuff like that, which um, is interesting, but it doesn't particularly add to your daily life that much. So um, that, that, to, to, in a short or, or in a nutshell, that's how I got into it. Yeah, so you get to double dip a bit, which is also what I, why I feel like getting to study Stoicism. I feel the same way. How are some of the ways um, that Stoicism has affected your life, or I guess that that uh, that philosophy as a way of life aspect has changed the way you've viewed things as you've gotten more into it? Well, I mean, it's 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 helped with anxiety. I think all of us do with anxiety to, to different different degrees um, and, and at different moments in our life. So, of course, it, it's very handy to have these these sayings and teachings in the back of your mind to pull upon. Um, and I think so well from, you know, personal integrity, again, we'll all face moments where we, you know, we, we, we can act against our integrity or we, we, we can feel that. Well, the, the Stoics very much believe in having role models. Um, that, that was part of their uh, therapeutic exercises, which I've tried to remember and, you know, think, well, uh, yeah, what, what would, Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius, etc., uh, do and and so I, I find that that uh, support, you know, morally speaking. So it, it's yeah, dealing with anxiety and then reminding like, no, that that isn't the person I am, and I, I'm not going to act. And even if no one knows that I'm going to act in that way, I'm I'm, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, that's great. So switching now to Epictetus, I mean, I think I think you you nailed it on the head, and I think I'm guilty of this, frankly. Uh, is studying it as a you can look at Epictetus almost as this this mind in a vacuum. Um, you study it as like it's this abstract thing that doesn't have that hasn't developed from its time and place. That its language isn't referring to particular things. That it's it's not responding to a particular cultural context or historical environment. Um, and I know that that's part of I would say one of the limitations of a of a philosophy education. So really excited to talk about the history of Epictetus here uh, with you. So. To start us off, could you provide an overview of the life of Epictetus, or at least what we know about it? Because I know there's some problems with sources and confidence in that regard. So we, we know he was born in what is now modern-day Turkey, but um, back then was Asia Minor, particularly in the region of uh, Phrygia. Uh, he was born or became a slave in his youth, and he ended up uh, in Rome in uh in, in the household of Epaphroditus, who um, himself had been enslaved, but he was a, a freedman of, of the Emperor Claudius, and then rose to have a very prominent place in, in history of um, Epaphroditus, um, being uh, basically the, the Emperor Nero's main kind of confidant. In fact, he was the one who uh, he entrusted to stab him to death. Uh, and, and I think there's a group of just about three of them surrounding the Emperor Nero on his death, and he was one of them. Um, and Epictetus ended up in 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 his household, uh, which he uh, there was a wonderful article by Miller Ferguson, Epictetus in the Imperial Court, and and he just scours through the discourses looking for uh, little anecdotes that Epictetus makes from from his time um, in the household of Epaphroditus, um, and, and and so that's uh, that's fascinating. We know that Epictetus attended the lectures of Masonius Rufus, who was a Roman philosopher of stoicism which which was unusual rome was not actually a seat of great philosophical um, teaching they, they tended to philosophers tended to go around the um around about the, the greek east for reasons i'll probably get into later on but anyway masonius rufus was there he seemed to be quite a popular philosopher uh, and epictetus for reasons we don't know but he he was 
basically a student of Masonius Rufus. He then became freed at some point, and um, Epictetus set up his own his own school. We know that while, while he was in Rome, he, he did recount at one time in the discourses, he, he would go around trying to proffer people with philosophical you know, ad advice, and he said he actually thought that didn't tend to work very well. Uh, but he, he ended up crossing the Adriatic, going to the, uh, the fairly new city of Nicopolis. Actually, its name means new, new city. He set up a school there. He's pretty much one of the only philosophers we know who, who actually was there. It's, it's quite, a, quite an odd choice to, to base himself there. And um, he, he lived and, and uh, communicated his philosophy there. And thankfully, he had a student, um, Arian, who then became famous for writing all kinds of writings, particularly on Alexander the Great, etc. And he studied there and wrote up his the lecture notes. And he says in the introduction to it, he thinks the lecture, these are private lecture notes that somehow got into the public, which actually happened quite a lot in antiquity. Lots of writers complained about that. Um, and um, we have about half of these remaining, and these are the discourses of, of Epictetus, and then we have the handbook, um, or the Enchiridion. Uh, as well, and that was round about 110 to 115 uh, AD. So we have the, the lecture notes from that time, and we can date it pretty closely, actually, from contemporary references Epictetus makes to uh, various contemporary wars and things that were happening at, at that time. And um, after that, uh, you're relying on things such as um, I think it's in the Suda. It, it mentions that Epictetus adopted a child of his own age and, and, and brought him up. Was there's we don't know if it's true, but that he was potentially visited by the Emperor Hadrian. That would be after the time of the discourses, and we know he was visited by lots of people. The discourses themselves show us that he he became something of a kind of minor celebrity uh, in his in his day, or for people who were interested in philosophy. And he um, there were statues placed about him in in various places, um, and then his his school at this time philosophical schools didn't actually tend to put down roots as they did in ancient Greece. Uh, it tended to be once the, the, the leader of it passed away, they, that's it kind of gone. So he didn't pass it on to, to anyone else. Yeah, that was well done. That's a, <laughs> it was a lot to capture in, in a short amount. Um, I want to dig d deep dive into parts of that. My first question was about, um, you know, where Epictetus was born, um, this what is now modern day Turkey, what kind of what, what uh, what's the historical context there of 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 um, the area that he's from, and how might he have made it to Rome? Um, what kind of would have that process looked like? So he he was born to to Rome. To Rome is it's Asia Minor, but he's born in a region called Phrygia, which uh, is a fascinating area of um, Asia Minor. So it, it's a it, it's a heavily Hellenized area. So it, it's it's very Greek. Um, although the Phrygians have their own kind of proud history. It's, and asking how he, you know, his, his slavery and, and him as a slave, Phrygia was actually famous for its slaves. And uh, it, it's, in the Roman world, you, you had stereotypes about where your slave is from, you expect different things from them. And um, so from Phrygia, they were actually quite highly prized, actually, particularly young boys, for some reason, I don't know, handsome or talented and things like this. Uh, so it's not surprising to me that Epictetus well, he was probably in, in, either enslaved as a boy. I think the suit actually says was was born to enslaved mother. Actually, if I remember that right, um, but he was certainly in, enslaved as a as a youngster, if 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 not from birth. So he was he was from there, 
Um, it, it was particularly a religious area. We know it was heavily known for lots of sacrifices um, a lot, and Epictetus actually constantly references sacrifices. It might be uh, something he's, he's very familiar with from his from his childhood. Um, so that's uh, that's Virginia. The, the main city in it is, is Hierapolis, which the the Suda says Epictetus it doesn't actually say he was born there. It says of Hierapolis, um, which is uh, intriguing. I think it's plausible, anyway, that he might not have actually been born there, uh, and actually his name is actually an ethonym, which means that Epictetus is actually ref potentially referencing the area he's from, because just not too far from Hierapolis is the region of Epictetus. Um, and, and slave names were often actually ethonyms, which meant that you, you would get called after where you're from. So it, it could be that Epictetus actually, you, you'll, oft, you'll often have it said in Stoic books that it means acquired, so it's a reference to his enslaved status. Here's my new acquired slave, um, which it could be. Um, and I, I do have a catalogue somewhere of different slave names of, um, and the name Epictetus, etc. Um, but it, it it could very well be that he's actually from the region of Epictetus, which, as I say, was very close to Hierapolis. Uh, it's, it's within uh, Phrygia. Um, so he was raised there, he would have almost certainly have spoken Greek um, from youth. As for what age he went to, to Rome, we're, we're not sure. Great. I might just get us to go back through the summary just in more detail, because I, I mean, I'm finding this absolutely fascinating. In terms of philosophy in Rome, like, you know, you said it was not really known for its, uh, I guess it's philosoph philosophical strength at the time. So it's, you know, it's surprising that Epictetus received an education from Masonius Rufus there. But can you speak more, I guess, to the reception of philosophy or the treatment of philosophy at the time or anything we know about Epictetus's relationship with Masonius Rufus? So as for his relationship with Masonius Rufus, I mean, he's obviously very fond of him. He, he ref references him quite a lot, always approvingly. Um, and all, uh, including times when when Rufus, you know, would really have changed his mind about things or had a witty response. So he was obviously deeply attached to Masonius Rufus, or, or was intellectually, certainly. And yeah, as as for Rome, I mean, actually, Epictetus has a great uh, anecdote within the the discourses. Was it um, Italicus? I may be misremembering the precise name because he's not actually that well known today. He said th this was a man who was reputed to be the uh, the, the best of the Roman philosophers at the time. And uh, to paraphrase, Titus has a, a scenario where Italicus basically points his, you know, almost stabs his finger at him and basically is saying, like, you care about philosophy too much uh, and is kind of, you know, getting really angry and jabbing his finger at him. And he says, this is meant to be the best philosopher in Rome. You know, this is, and, and he's, you know, he's doing that. Uh, the Romans had a, and it, it changes over time, but I mean, so in, in his youth, it's still somewhat uh, youngish, in, in, or still not in its infancy, but philosophy is still kind of embedding itself in Rome. So the Romans tended to be a bit lukewarm with philosophy. They, I mean, some of them boast, some of them have on their gravestones, um, I died at 60 and I've never met a philosopher, as, as like a, a kind of statement, great success. <laughs> For some reason, um, so some of them loved it. Uh, others of them just really detested it. Um, they thought it would, it was competing with traditional Roman attributes and, and traditions. They had the Mars Morum, which was basically looked to the ancestors, looked to your 
the Roman stories. And philosophy just seemed to be this kind of foreign competing idea. So it's kind of clash of culture kind of ideas. But for most Romans, actually, they, they tended to greatly value it. They wanted to be around philosophers. They would often have, if you were rich anyway, you it wasn't uncommon to have like a household philosopher that would just live in your house and, you know, they claim on philosophy and, you know, just collect them. Um, and it was seen as a, a way of showing you're educated and you're urbane and civilized. And many, many, many Roman politicians and senators were associated in different ways with philosophy. But it tended to, they got very suspicious if it became too deep. And there's a there's a trope within ancient um, writings about angry fathers who've sent their sons off to study with philosophers and they stay, you know, more than four years or five years. And it looks like actually they're wanting to become philosophers rather than being, you know, senators or, you know, um, running their the great palatial estates. And the fathers start to get, they, they threaten all kinds of things to do with disinheritance and this kind of stuff. There's at least four, refer four or five references um, to that happening. It became something of a trope. Um, so in general, Romans were okay with philosophy, but it, it wasn't to get too deep. You have to keep it into perspective and it shouldn't cross over into becoming like an, an obsession. Uh, and, and Epictetus, he also references an, a, a Roman who basically doing that, going up to his students and saying, now listen, it's fine to be there for a few years when you're young, but let it go. Um, you know, you've done your, it, it's kind of, I don't know, today, like sometimes academics get it. If you, it's okay going to university, doing your undergraduate degree, but do you really need to stay on and do your PhD? I mean, really, you're just, you're just kind of dossing around, you get a real job. Um, you know, I, I had that from people like why are you still there why are you why are you still studying this i mean this is this is no longer you know you, you need to enter the world of work now it, it's kind of to draw a parallel that that would be kind of what was happening i think it's a really compelling parallel anybody who's studied um at least philosophy i'm sure the same thing with history you got any any humanities degree um you're getting that very very quickly um so I mean, is there a sense that it's like a practical issue or like your your head is just up in the clouds, you're, you just sit around talking about ideas while Romans do? Like what is the aversion or is it that they're, you know, you're only affording to go and study with Epictetus if you're from a very rich family. So there's these kind of familial obligations. I guess where is the, where is the resentment coming from if they're also the kind of people that will have a philosopher in the house? So in the in the late Republic, early Empire, and if you look into people like Seneca, uh, the the Roman elites would never call themselves philosophers. And he points out several times where Seneca basically almost goes right to the line and says, "I'm a philosopher, but has to step back." And it's so it's seen as okay to be knowledgeable and to dabble in it, even to kind of specialize in it, but. You're not a philosopher. And it's a kind of status, but I mean, in, in for elite Romans, they are, they're very status aware. And so, you know, it, it was, 
outside of farming and being engaged in that, you, you couldn't really make your money elsewhere. I mean, you, you often you would, you'd have freedmen who do it for you, but it's just, it's just not appropriate to be, you know, dabbling in wine merchants and stuff, you know, or um, trading wine, that kind of stuff. So it's just, they have a quite restrictive kind of idea of the world. Think, you know, I don't know, going back a couple of centuries ago to, like, I'm thinking the British aristocracy, they just, it was, this is appropriate, that is not appropriate. It's just a very kind of clear cut sense of what you should be doing. And so there was a sense in which to be a philosopher as like a vocation is is a Greek thing. It's for the Greeks. And we, we can learn from it. We can be interested in it. Uh, we can even support it. And we can even fund it, like the, the, the making of books. But but we don't actually become a philosopher like ourselves. That, that, that's, it's a step too far. It's crossing the line. Um, so that that seems to be where it's kind of coming from. We do know that some of Epictetus' students express a desire to start their own schools because he um, and he keeps telling them not to. But he the reason is because he says you're not ready yet. Um, as for whether that would have caused tension with the families, yeah, this is great because that's exactly what I was thinking. Is it's cutting both ways, right? So it's the environment that Epictetus is discovering philosophy in. But it's also the environment and the culture that is informing who he's teaching, right? So this this Roman reception of philosophy is, yeah, it's both it's both Epictetus's experience, but also the co uh, context that he's teaching in. So yeah, let's let's talk a bit about what his students would be like or um, their thoughts about philosophy. Well, the ones we're aware of, they all seem to be Greek, and he he references uh, once, maybe twice. Like this might be problematic for you because what this what you know what we're reading what we're talking about here is in Latin, or he references just like you have trouble dealing with Latin, which by the way is fascinating just within the scholarship of Nicopolis because and this is a sub debate but there's a big debate amongst his historians about was Nicopolis more more of a Greek city or a Roman city and what language did they speak but we won't get into that but this is a really interesting thing for the scholars of Nicopolis who sometimes overlook Epictetus he says at least his students anyway that they are they are very much speaking Greek they actually struggle with Latin and it's been argued before Constantine founded or changed Byzantium into Constantinople a lot of the Eastern Romans, so the, the empire is kind of divided into half, uh, the Eastern part of the empire would be speaking in Greek. And they could kind of get by with not speaking Latin that much, or, you know, just to a passing level. Um, so Epictetus' students seem to, he, he references it just as, you know, just as you guys struggle with Latin. Uh, so they seem to be coming from, um, really from the Greek-speaking areas. And... And any cities where he implies they're from, for example, we know one of his students, he... he um, basically says he's from Thebes and things like this. Uh, and if he talks about the places they know, it, it's all Greek places. And he, at, a few times, at least once, he references their fear of going to Rome, like being settled in Rome. And their fear as well, what he says, one student has a fear that he won't become a senator, and another student has a fear that he will, as in, you know, the, the pressure of it. A good deal of them, anyway, would seem to be actually aged 16 to 20, and they've been sent by their parents, and they've been sent to get kind of the, the, the highest level of education they can, and their parents are hoping that they then go to Rome and fulfill various functions there. Um, that seems to be the, and there will be exceptions to that, but that seems to be the kind of the general uh, kind of um, or reason that the, the students are there. Uh, we, we know that philosophy, the, the earliest we can really hear about it is age 16. 
but it tends to be people who are around about 18, 20. I think Cicero was quite late. He was 25. That was reputed to be quite quite a late age to go off and study philosophy. Um, so you're dealing with young men. You're dealing with uh, quite um, affluent men. Um, if not right at the top of society, you're, you're talking about kind of, you know, getting up there. So in Discourses 3, he says... Uh, so the nearest parallel is students who have just gone off, you know, in, in our own day, gone to a foreign city or foreign country to study. Uh, and you can kind of see this nice parallel. Uh, but he, he says his students say, but of having no one to cook for you and no servant to do the shopping, no other servant to put your shoes on and no other to dress you, no other to give you a massage and no others to follow after you, etc., um, etc., he, you know, he, he's basically, he, these are students of the elite and they've, they've gone abroad. And for many of them, they're without all the, the wide coterie, the wide range of uh, family servants that are surrounding them, putting their clothes on, helping them bathe, that kind of stuff. And he's saying, you're coming to class and you're worried about this, right? You know, you, you've just left home. They're 16 to 20 year old you know, young men. Um, and they're without... They were without all the comforts of home. Although at least in one in one passage, he does reference some of his students who actually have brought some slaves with them. So there are some students uh, with their own slaves, but for some of them, they're away without slaves, uh, and they find that terribly hard. Uh, and but the 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 default when he's talking to them is this is someone who's talking to uh, you know to, to people from from great financial backgrounds the default is remember when your nurses would you know scold you or or um, actually scold the the rock that you hit and be like you know bad rock and things like this to the the um when they were children um there, there's just this presumption that you know they, they or the awareness that they've come from from that kind of setting where you know they, they've had their own nurse following them around the place or nanny as we would more often say they have their own slaves they're used to to comfort and they're away from home for the first time. And he warns one of them as well, um, don't put your fancy clothes out in the window because you know, you're not living in such, you, your neighbor opposite, he hasn't got as much money, he's gonna steal it. Um, so he's also kind of having to, to kind of um, kind of daddy them in a bit as well. It kind of occasionally will slip into lecture notes in amongst the, you know, giving an exposition on philosophy you get these these like don't you know don't put your clothes up there they'll, they'll get stolen and yes i know it's tough without your family slaves around you but you know um here's the philosophical perspective uh, so so these are are young ambitious students we know that many of them and this this was the case in ancient you know, in in the ancient roman empire there's lots and lots of, of descriptions of fathers touring around the schools so they would go with their sons around the schools and to check out which one they wanted to go to. And you see that in the discourses. You have, and Epictetus gets very angry at him because he thinks the father is a bit of a philosophical oath. But he, um, he, he, there's a father touring the school and he, you know, he just walks into the lecture room to see if, okay, will I send my son here? And that's, that's very common. That tended to be the way it would, would be. It's a very important decision where you send your, you know, your son for four or five years. And kind of like a university tour today. So, you know, the, the parents go along or the, the father goes along and susses it out. And um, then you, you send the, the uh, your son there. They would be coming from around the, the eastern, overwhelmingly they'd be coming from the eastern part of the Roman Empire. We know that as well from Richard Goulet, uh, who catalogued, um, it's, it's an amazing, I, I wish I could have done it. Since the 1980s, I don't know if you're familiar with Richard Gillet's work, but from since the 1980s, he's collected every epigraphical, so that means anything written in stone, which is often where you have 
references to philosophers. Every time a philosopher in antiquity was mentioned in stone, and I think also in texts, he added it to his uh, Dictionary of Ancient Philosophers, which is in French. But since the 1980s until about 10 years ago, so it took decades for him to do it. Um, and then he was able to do statistical analysis. And overwhelmingly, when you look at where these people who say, I'm a philosopher, where they and where they studied overwhelmingly it's from the the, the east part of the, the mediterranean and they tend to travel so they don't tend to stay in their home cities so it's very much kind of international or well, um within the roman empire but um traveling from all over so and, and epictetus twice has to deal with homesickness he says you're missing your home you're missing your home city you're missing the familiar baths that you go to um you don't think the baths here are, are as nice as your ones in home it's deep. these are young, ambitious men away from home for the first time, and, and, and they're missing their surroundings. For many of them, they're missing um, having quite the same level of comfort. Yeah, this is just this is just fascinating to me. I'm absolutely loving this. What do we know about um, the city of uh, Nicopolis in terms of? So we have if the if the boys are not from the city. What might what might they be coming into? What what is kind of the what are they finding themselves in? You, you talked about this might be a place where people will steal your nice clothes. Is this a place where there's a kind of tension with Epictetus's school or integration with Epictetus's school? I'm just curious if you could paint a picture of, of the city picture. itself. Yeah, it, it's a really fascinating place. I I had a I was meant to go there just before COVID hit. I booked a hotel room and I was going to walk around Nicopolis, but then COVID hit, so I couldn't. And then just various reasons haven't, haven't been able to go back. It's one of the largest archaeological sites in in Greece, but it, it gets overlooked because it's not Athens, it's not, you know, I don't know, Mount Olympus or something. And unless you're really into Roman history or you're into Stoicism, but again, I, and it's understandable, but if you're into Stoicism and philosophy, you kind of don't think of them as historical characters so much. You're interested in the philosophy, obviously. But so it tends to get overlooked, but the it was built... Uh, across the Adriatic from Rome, it was connected to Rome. It would often be, depending on the sailing routes, it would be uh, your last stop before you get into Rome. And by the way, the uh, ancient seafaring is is quite an interesting way. Epictetus talks about it a lot. When you understand the ancient seafaring, you know why he does. Um, anyway, um, so you have a lot of people, uh, there's about three or five visitors who come to Epictetus at school. They say they're just stopping by. And when you stop by, you're there for... A couple of days, you go see the famous philosopher. So they, they step into the school just to see him. Uh, but it was founded by the Emperor Augustus. And it was founded, it, it's, it's a Greek idea, actually, but it's it's a victory city. And if you if you think about uh, the, well, the most famous victory city, which still exists today and still has its name, Alexandria in Egypt, named after Alexander. I think there's about 40 or 50 of these Alexandrias, and we've still got one. Um, basically, if you have a famous victory, you, you, you create a city nearby it or on it, the, the, the site, and um, you name it after yourself or something to do with the victory. And Nicopolis is named after one of the greatest battles in antiquity, certainly in Roman history, which is the Battle of Axiom. And that brought to the end the rebellions after Julius Caesar, you know, crossing the Rubicon, and then all the conflagration between the the, the senators and the um, the people supporting Julius Caesar, and then Octavian slash Augustus, and and then Octavian versus Mark Antony, um, etc. And so that just you know for for decades this was 
convulsing the Roman world, and the Battle of Axiom, which was a sea battle, brought it to an end. And then you have the Pax Romana existing for hundreds of years. And it's the Battle of Axiom. So it's a kind of it's a kind of D-Day or whatever kind of you know well-known battle we might think about today. It, ha it has that resonance. And Nicopolis is the, the city built to commemorate it. And it was a huge tourist site. I mean, it, you can actually, you can go there today. You can go to the top of the hill where Augustus t um, um, had his tents looking out to the, what would be the, uh, for the Adriatic, the, the Battle of Actium the night before. And they had, they captured these huge oars from Mark Antony's fleet. And they had that they built this basically like a museum to it. You can go up and you can look around it. And so it was, it was a victory city and it was, uh, built largely actually in a, uh, it's a fusion of Greek and, and Roman, and you can see it in uh, like the Roman baths, but then it has a Greek-shaped uh, theatre, which still exists. I mean, it's heavily degraded, but you can walk amongst it. They've actually, it's actually quite reasonably well-preserved, actually. Uh, and by the way, Epictetus references it, and he references events that happened in there. He references the crowd getting angry at the, uh, the ruler of Epirius, um, which is the region Nicopolis was in because he'd committed adultery and or things like that. Um, so he, Epictetus is, you know, this is part of the city that Epictetus knows. He knows this theatre. He knows the events that go on there. He references his students, you know, walking up after the after their class and they go into the theatre. We, we, we can walk there today. We can go. And so Nicopolis is remarkably well preserved. And it's, it's, it's probable that the, the house, the, well, we know Epictetus taught in the house, probably the house of Quadratus, um, is what he says. So he taught in the house. It probably still exists. I mean, it's probably just like, you know, an outline of bricks, but it's probably somewhere there, you know, it, it's there. Um, and so you can you can visit it. Nicopolis was reasonably prosperous. I mean, it was small. I forget the population size now. A few tens of thousands, but that would be reasonably large for, for back then. Um, and because it was the emperor's city, Augustus's city, we, 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 um, you have Herod. Um, Herod uh, sent money. He he actually contributed to the I think it was the baths, or it might have been the theatre. Uh, he 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 sent a lot of the money from from Judea. Went up there to b help build Nicopolis because you're trying to show that you're you know you're loyal to Augustus and and his regime. Um, so it was quite a well known city actually um, at that time, and, and people would have very much known about it. Um, but it is on the it, it's on this kind of boundary, this liminal zone between the Roman world and the Greek world, which is actually, I suppose, a good place to be if you're a philosopher, which is like Epictetus, kind of this divide between Greece and Rome. Um, so it's a pretty good place to be, and you're you're very close to Rome, and um, he constantly references people bringing news from Rome and uh, people just about to cross over to Rome. So you're a step away. And we hadn't actually said he was he was exiled. He was exiled by Domitian. And uh, but so you're just across from Rome. But he also says, and I think this explains some people said, why didn't he go back to Rome? We know that there were many philosophers that go back to Rome. Why didn't he? He didn't want to, from what from what I can see. And I think he was he actually tells us why. And I've hardly ever seen anyone kind of reference this. He says in Rome the disturbing pleasures are, you know so much it it occludes it gets in the way of our philosophical principles there's so many you know um great baths and theaters and all this everywhere um it's harmful um so i think he he wanted to say in nicopolis because it was it was a respectable fairly prosperous place you know there were there was a theater there were baths and things like that 
but it wasn't you know it's it's not like trying to be a student and you're in like down downtown manhattan or something and there's just stage plays everywhere and all the you know, nightlife and whatever um so i think that's why i i think you didn't want to go back to rome because it just wasn't just wasn't where you do philosophy not a philosophical school i i think you could do a a kind of guide to nicopolis but just with the writings of the discourses because he, he mentions a lot of these buildings actually the baths and the, you know uh, the theatres and, and and um the streets and um you know he, he he mentions you can see in some of the walls how it's been um from the oil lamp has turned to black he references it you know you can really feel like you're walking in his world um and, and a lot of the things he references and you can see in the museum they have a museum there in the Capolis, which i've only been able to see online but they have um like childhood games and things like this that they find some of these games he actually references he said you know when you're outside and you see them playing this game with with nuts um they have some of these 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 things in, in the museum so it's fascinating you really feel like you could be well you are you're in his you're in his world um that he's referencing as he's looking around to his students yeah i'm getting uh shivers hearing about that I'm like, this is so cool i i'm i'm planning my trip as as you're talking um <laughs> i think it, it's it's really interesting that we're really lucky that that's preserved and that it still exists and i i think the other thing that you flagged there just about it being this this liminal space between the greek and the roman um cultures which is something we've hit on about Greek being associated with philosophy and Romans respecting it, but kind of keeping it at arm's distance. Maybe it's this kind of thing you go and do for a bit, but you shouldn't engage in for too long. And that kind of geographical location almost supports that project. I also was thinking about how similar we are uh, even to back back then, right? You send your, this would be maybe either a kind of a private high school education or university education, whatever the analogy is, you send your your child away for that. Um, but they come back and they reintegrate. And I think of, uh, I did my PhD in a, in a relatively small town. And I think of these cities like Oxford or Cambridge, where you, you're close to London, but you don't have, as you said, the distractions of the theater. It's kind of more of a focus on the life of the mind while you're there. And and they're, 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 that, that function will always, has always, existed or at least existed back then of these cities that are more uh more aptly designed for study so one thing Erlen, i know, I know that, that you've written a lot about that i think is really interesting is epictetus's approach to non-philosophers or to lay people i wanted to move on to that but before we did just conscious is there any anything interesting in that history or background that we didn't hit on yet that you think is worth uh digging into I have a folder of notes about every every time he mentions just something to do with daily life, and there's lots actually. Uh, there was, I think it was Ferg uh, Miller Ferguson who who, who Ferguson who said um, who said that he's unjustly ignored by historians as a historical source himself. He's just turned it by philosophers. So, um, yeah, you know, dress, children's games, uh, the institution of slavery. He says a lot about, which is a really interesting thing because he depending on what angle you you kind of want to go in that he, he kind of says lots of different things actually um about that um so just as a resource for historians um he, he tends to get ignored which which is a shame i think one thing to do with which people are always interested in is his status as a slave so he's obviously it's, it's unusual to be a slave and end up becoming a 
widely regarded historian, having emperors potentially visit you and the children of the elite sitting, you know, at your feet. So on the one, on you know, certain certain that is, and I'm not, I don't want to take away from that. It is he, he's a remarkable figure from that, and of course, people always you know talk about you know the philosophy. It brings together a slave and a Roman emperor, you know, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, uh, and that's true. Some in terms of how he became a philosopher. Uh, it's it's an interesting move to make and there's there's different reasons that we can maybe put together how that came about um one we know that many people would send educated slaves to listen to philosophers um you know gallen had there was a, a range of slaves just sitting around taking notes on wax and they take it back to their master you know stuff like that. so it could be that epaphroditus sent him to Masonius rufus and then he just excelled um, we know that there were many. There was actually a training school in Rome for the the slaves of the elite, particularly the Roman, the imperial household. Um, I forget the name of it, but it turned out, you know, dozens and dozens, you know, every year of really educated slaves. They would be sent there to, study, particularly if you're from a Greek background, because they associated learning with Greek slaves, and so he's from Phrygia, Hellenized Greek area. So um, it, it could be he he was maybe at this school, which, which taught them, you know, really really in depth. So it could be that that's where he's gained the you know awareness of literacy and, and education. I thought if you if you look at the the literary references he makes, they tend to be fairly kind of mundane, you know, to like Homer and that kind of stuff. Not too much more than that. But anyway, that that's an, it. It's a, of interest to me to try and put together of how did he move from he was a slave of you know you're talking someone right at the top you know just almost just removed from the emperor so he was in a fairly elite kind of well household and status but how did he make that move so it, it's probably it's probably along that along that lines or we know the the elite would have far too many slaves than they needed and they, they complained about or there were complaints about um you know hundreds of slaves just roaming around the the theatres because there's nothing for them to do but it's just like a status symbol so you say you know, i've got a thousand slaves i don't know what to do with them um so uh it could be he just naturally just ended up with missouri's rufus so without direction from Aphroditus, uh, we, we don't really know well let's just let's follow up on that real quick do you know anything about the process of being freed from slavery or the process of sl your slavery ending as far as we know, it was estimated that probably the majority of slaves were freed in their lifetime. A lot of that would be actually, um, sometimes cynically, so it could actually be when they're getting quite old and they can do very much. So, well, you know, congratulations, you're six years old, um, here's your freedom, which is not, not very good. Um, because then, of course, you don't need to support them really. But for many of them, it, it was uh, a way of just basically thanks, and it was expected that you would kind of do it. The, the Romans had a. We don't want to get it too much because then we'll take you know half an hour in Roman slavery. But the the Romans had a. It could be a tremendously humiliating experience being a Roman slave. It could also not be quite as 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 bad. Uh, the Romans in their foundation story, they of Romulus and Remus, was that it was actually a collection of criminals and slaves who joined them, and they had that in their kind of their background. Um, and they they had a few laws and, and and customs that maybe sometimes surprised people in in how they treated their slaves. Although again, they could treat them horribly. Um, but if you ended up with a good master, and it, it was it was perfectly acceptable, expected even 
you know, you, you get a reward for 10 years good service and, and they they free you. Um, that, that was not uncommon. Um, that would separate it from other forms of slavery that, you know, we were aware of more in the more recent, um, you know, um, past where you were, if you were a slave, you were basically a slave and, and that was it. So we, we don't know why he was freed. None of our sources really talk about that. Um, or just one of them, I think it's maybe apocryphal that he was freed uh, because Epaphroditus made him lame and felt guilty. I'm not sure if it's a bit, anyway, we're not really sure that's true. So we, we don't know, but he, he was freed. But as I say, Epaphroditus was a slave as well. His his master was 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 a slave and, and, and he was freed and then came on, you know, the next in, in, in kind of ranked the, 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 the Roman Nero or his, his close confidant rather. Um, and that that was actually quite common. Freed freed slaves were actually right at the top of the Roman Empire uh, under the the emperor. And the reason was they could trust them because if they freed them, they were bound duty you know loyal to them. And the other reason was uh, if you were a freed slave, you could actually advance quite a lot in the Roman world. There was uh, a lot of the richest people in Rome. You could still see a huge tomb in Rome. It's it's in the shape of a Roman oven. Now, this guy basically had the uh, a chain of bakeries. In, to a UK audience, I would say it was like the it owned Greg's, which is a huge bakery chain everywhere. Uh, he was a free slave, so it, you, you could become you could become quite rich. But there was some stigma, so you couldn't marry into a senatorial family for the first generation, that kind of stuff. But the emperors trusted them because they were free slaves; they could not become the emperors. So they knew that they they would have absolutely nothing to gain by assassinating them uh, unless they were very annoyed at them but certainly not to advance their own you know cause to the throne they, they couldn't because they're ex they're freed slaves so um that's why epaphroditus he, he became very trusted by nero who of course was tremendously paranoid he's a free slave so it's fine yeah fascinating the there's this familiarity with the upper court but uh a kind of limit on your power but perhaps only short term and only in some regards um really a, just a very interesting context. And as you said, quite different from the, I would say, you know, we, we, at least being from Canada, we associate with uh, the North American or the, the, the America slave trade. Um, yeah. So let's jump into Epictetus and non-philosophers. We talked a lot about how he approaches um, the students in his school or the context of the students in his school. But one thing that you're, you know, you're a specialist in is that kind of reception and treatment of non-philosophers, whatever lay people. Um, and so, could you write an overview on that? Yeah, it's. I I was so when I I started my doctorate, I was going to do uh, stoicism and how they um, propagated themselves and just. To what level was Stoicism known? So, because uh, scholars are very interested in Stoicism, and to understand like ancient thought, and so I wanted to know how far had it seeped into like you know the the ancient mindset. Was this something that you know ten percent of the population were signed up for, five percent, twenty percent? You know, how diffuse was the knowledge of Stoicism, and were they concerned about that? And um, I started this probably just probably just after or as Stoicism was kind of gaining in popularity online and, and, and in the real world. And you see a great deal of popularizing efforts to kind of reach people and, and, and spread the message, which I, I think is good. But um, I 
in the back of my mind, I also wondered, was this something the ancient Stoics were doing as well? Was, was, and if so, how were they doing that? Um, and so I then realized it was far too big to look at just the, the Stoics. So I, I narrowed it down to Epictetus for various reasons. As for, well, if I start with popularization, uh, there were means you could popularize a philosophy in antiquity, and the Epicureans were very adept at that. They could do that quite well. Uh, they produced epitomes, which are basically, okay, here's this big, chunky philosophical text. We're going to condense it into a, like a kind of Cliff Notes version, and you can you can read that. And it's just, it's, it's a nice, simplified version of it. Um, you could create letters as well. Uh, Epicurus um, did that. Um, so basically simplifying the texts. So you, you keep the complex text, but then you simplify, simplify it down. Popularized introductory material, basically. You could also produce uh, nomologies, which are essentially uh, a collection collections of witty sayings, and you could spread that around. And uh, there was a brilliant master's thesis in Oxford by a student a few years ago. She, she partly looked at uh, how many epigraphs in the Roman Empire had little Epicurean sayings. And from quite some quite lowly people, like gladiators, actually, particularly, uh, have these epicurean uh, sayings. And you could also communicate to a mass audience as well, which uh, in, inside huge lecture halls or these kind of places. Um, so th those were the means which you could propagate uh, a philosophy widely. As as within the philosophy of the Stoa, the the you, you did have uh, Joan Tom, a uh, lecturer in classics from South Africa. He argued the Hymn to Zeus by Cleanthes might fall into one of these categories. But aside from that, we don't have any um, epitomes. And actually, we have we know Seneca, um, Lucilius, if, or again, we, well, we're not sure if that is a, a genuine literary exchange or if it's a kind of a theoretical exercise of what one might look like. Uh, he asked Seneca for extracts. Basically, he's saying, hey, can I get one of these shortened things to help me understand this? And Seneca says, no, you don't do that. We read the whole thing because you lose out on so much. So, sorry, you just got to read the whole thing. And we we don't have epitomes from the school. So they, they seem to be against that. You do have some indications of some Stoics preach, uh, not preaching, evangelizing, trying to communicate widely uh, in lectures. Um, but uh, that would really be Diochrysostom, who actually Epictetus criticizes and basically mocks for, look how big your audience is and all these people who don't understand what you're saying, basically. Uh, and he, he basically says, you're not a philosopher, we don't do that. Um, and so Diochrysostom is this kind of between, this kind of part cynic, part stoic. And um, certainly Epictetus does not agree with his approach in that. Um, I think we have records of, you know, Masonius Rufus going before troops, Roman troops before some rebellion and, and trying to talk them down. Uh, it, it isn't really, hey, I want you to become philosophers. It's we're at a dangerous moment. I'm going to go out and try and persuade you about, you know, to not sign up this rebellion or something like that. Sure. Uh, so we don't have uh, the public lectures either. And again, you actually have criticism of it. The other way, which I didn't mention, you could just go to people in the street, people who it looks like they might need philosophical advice. Yeah. Um, and Epictetus says he used to do that. He said he used to do that in Rome. He would go up to people uh, and he would try and 
engage them about the philosophy he was learning. And he says, but I quite quickly realized that isn't profitable. And he tells his students, don't do that. So there, there doesn't seem to have been any kind of attempt to broadly popularize or engage people just generally. Um, there, there isn't any evidence of that. And you can go back to the early parts of the school itself. I mean, Zeno, uh, it, it was reputed he chose the Stoa because it was not very well attended. It, it was the site of a massacre and people just didn't want to go there. And it said, you know, if, if there were crowds gathering around them, he would basically push them away. Um, that's in Diogenes Laertes, who wrote a history of philosophy. There's about three times he, he, he describes the tactics Zeno had to push people away. The only one we know was um, Chrysippus, so he, he he did teach in the Lyceum. But apart from that, um, and I did catalogue it, um, you know, um, Epictetus, Perseus, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, every time they describe how they're teaching philosophy, it, it's in a house. And usually the images of about 10 to 20 people gathered around them within, within a house setting. Um, so that's that's by far the dominant one, and, and Seneca as well. He references going; he's learning philosophy in a house. Um, so that's that's the setting. So they they weren't trying to popularize the philosophy. Now, as for why that is, I think that's where you have to understand the historical context. Uh, the only other person I know he's addressed that was Julia Annas about fifteen years ago. She wrote on that. Um, uh, just just in passing and she she says uh, it's if you understand the historical context of ancient education it makes sense why they have that approach and people today who think stoicism has something to say to everyone um shouldn't necessarily be bound by that that there's nothing inherent in the philosophy that should uh, necessarily prevent popularizing although i think i think there is a message there which is basically don't dumb it down and change it into something it's not uh, and the Stoics were actually very, very much against that. And I, I think that is a challenge um, to some popularizing works, uh, which are out there. The, 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 and and Epictetus actually continually tells his students not to do that. They get quite enthused and they're like, this is great. Everyone should know. And he's like, no, just make sure you have it straight. You're not ready yet. And that isn't really the way to do it. This is a serious thing. And you need to take this you know, um, in, in using the proper kind of, you know, understanding of what it's like. Um, so as for, well, would you like me to speak about what what historical context Brian Julianus was? Yeah, let's do that. Um, so in the ancient world, education was, um, it would demark you as, as, as basically being elite. And the Greeks called it paideia. And it was, they, they jealously guarded it. So in the Greek world, to gain access to the gymnasium, where you would have, where you'd be educated, um, often in, in various things, uh, it was restricted, and usually actually familially. So you would, you know, have to, your father had to have gone there and that kind of stuff. And even the Romans, they would call, if you read Juvenal, he's just scathing of these people who, who come into money, and then they gather books and, and try and gain learning. It's seething kind of satire against people who try and, having not been born into riches, try and obtain education and kind of gain entrance into the Roman world or the, the, the elite world. Um, so it was actually something they, they guarded access to education. It was not something they thought, they certainly didn't have the idea, we need to spread this around to everyone, everyone should be educated. 
because it actually signaled I and mean, they they the romans thought you could tell he was educated by the way they walked they thought there was a certain even walk in the way in which he would you would have from an educated person and the way in which he would talk um just like the, the your your cadence would be trained and things like this so it was a defining attribute of your status to be educated and if you tried to spread that around this is the the, the sophist tried to do this it was just seen as kind of degrading and also it wouldn't really work um and i think juliana said you know you, you are living in a world where most people weren't educated you know most people couldn't read or write and how can you how can you accurately try and spread complex philosophy to them now some could there was uh, was it Cleanthes was a slave and he drew water and things like that. and there are two examples in epigraphs of freedmen who became philosophers like Epictetus. so and we lose sight of that if we forget that because of course we're used to society where everyone i don't know what the illiteracy rate is but it must be just negligible um you know try and try and teach complex philosophy to people who have had just almost no exposure to education of course it's going to be futile so that's going on too we live in a world where every almost everyone can read um so of course you would say stop stop trying to do this stop trying to you know spread you know spread it around or stop trying to you know produce these simplified texts because for many people and, and the epicurean school which was open to this they got they really were very critical of some of their school members they tried to do it and they say stop trying to spread it around all these kind of rustic rural people they they just can't get it so that's that's partly going on uh, or that that's the cultural context within it um and it was it was you you as soon as you try and engage a large body of of, of people with it you become a kind of dio uh, uh, dio figure and you become a sophist which of course have been mocked all the way back you know from the beginning with socrates and plato etc and you're divesting philosophy of its its true core because you're having to compromise so much to make it understandable that you're actually harming it um and so stop it and i i do think uh, and i uh, so i i have a book out epictetus and lay people um within it i i think you do see signs that he actually said you know philosophy draws people to itself it's not for you and the people who are equipped for it in terms of education but also just mentally to actually genuinely want to learn it they will find it and it isn't our role to go out and find them uh we just basically um he's, he, he compares it to the the red of a toga of a senator it's my job to be that red narrow stripe that shines out and again unless you know the context you don't know what he's talking about what do you mean a, 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 a red line in a toga he's saying i'm like a senatorial toga that has this purple line down it and people will be drawn to it if they're of the right mindset and they will notice it but it's not my job to go out and you know um try and engage them with it so that's the that's the mindset and i think that that explains why they're doing it so on the one hand i think there is a message there which is um i you 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 of course will have people because stoicism is popular now who try and um and i i don't know because i haven't read any of these works but i don't know like 100 ways stoicism can help you cheat on your taxes or something like that like no it's 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 not going to do that like and that's not what it's for like no um so stop stop trying to 
make it popular into things that people like you know would would or or, or bring it into things that it, it isn't saying about it, but you think it might sell books people tried to do that in antiquity too and and the stoics were against it and said stop it don't do it uh so i think there is a lesson there but on the other hand like a lesson in our age is people are just more educated and are more acceptable to it so i think some of that restrictions and some of that worries aren't quite as appropriate although again i i, I think there is a lesson in but you do need to keep the you do need to keep the intellectual core there you can't just change us into whatever just because yeah. you think right well, someone reach me people so because because even with Senate, the example of Seneca, right, talking to Lucilius, that's somebody who's educated, and he's he, there's still that idea of no, I, I won't, I won't simplify it for you, um, right? Yeah, yeah. So so even to Lucilius, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and as I say, we we don't have the simplified text; they they just don't exist, and there's no reference to them, like we do say for the Epicurean school. So it just seems they just they. Like Seneca, that that seemed to be the, the apart from maybe the hymn of Cleanthes, which has was maybe the only potential one, but um, they they just didn't seem to to do it. They, they they thought it wasn't it wasn't done. There is the exception with the Enchiridion, the handbook. Now that's an interesting thing, because what uh, what scholars seem to think that is, it's basically like a aide de memoir for um, for for Arian. Um, or maybe also kind of his own kind of slight composition of him working through the philosophy and uh, doing that. So it almost, and it's actually a very complex book to fully understand, but uh, you can read it in a simplified way, but you're not really digging into it in, in the proper way it's meant to do. But there is, because uh, I, I then, I, I did set out to see in antiquity, what texts, can we get any idea of, of the texts that were popular in all common people? And the Epicurean ep epitomies, yes, they were. Um, to the extent Epicureanism was, was, was popular in the particularly the first century BC, first century AD. But Origen, who's an early church father in the second, third centuries, he says, because uh, uh, there's a pagan critic, who says, the Gospels are everywhere. You even have slaves and women reading it. This is This is so embarrassing. And Origen says, well, that, yeah, well, that, because philosophy is just for the, the elite and the educators, and you only gather, you know, it's tiny numbers. Um, and and the, the critic of Christianity, Celsus, thought that was really good. Like, see, see how elite we are? We have a tiny amount of people who read our work. See, that you can tell it's good because of that. And Origen says, basically says, yeah, that's right. You, not very many people read it. He says, apart from, Epictetus, Epictetus's handbook, which is a really fascinating throwaway, that in the second, third century, uh, century, um, there it is. It says the handbook is in the hands of, of you know, the common people, because it is, it, it isn't an epitome, but it almost looks like an epitome, um, and so people were drawn to it apparently, and it was going around the place. I don't know what Epictetus would have made of that. Um, but it, it, it's it's fast. So there, there was a kind of thirst for these these simplified texts. But the Stoics kind of pushed back against and said, no, we're not doing it. And the one that did get out there was, of course, the handbook, the Enchiridion. Which I don't think I don't think he'd have liked. He just said, no, you have to read the whole, you know, go through the whole discourses or, you know, find a, you know, 
a full a full stoic lecture if you want to get into it. But anyway, so it's this fast it's a fascinating fact of history that his handbook um ended up doing that. Yeah, there's so much great stuff there that you just said. There's so much to dive into. Um I mean one aspect there's almost like this funnel argument which is to say, well, popularization or introduction, you want people to be exposed to it so they can know if they're drawn to it or not, right? Like I was not, I didn't know what philosophy was in my own journey until I was already in university, already taking a psychology degree. And then I took a philosophy class and I was like, wow, this is amazing. Nobody's ever done philosophy with me before. So there's some value to popularization there. I also think that I at least have this tendency. My other thought is like, I want to kind of push back against elitism. I need to accept elitism if that was the case. But when I hear this idea of, you know, the, the Stoics being like, oh no, you know, don't, don't try to teach this to rural people. They just won't get it. It makes me feel a bit icky, but maybe as you said, I need to, I need to kind of accept my time and place. Maybe it makes me feel a bit icky because today people that are rural are still literate and you have access to the internet. It's, a, it's an entirely different time and place. But then I think, then I think the third thought I was having was being more charitable. If we think about philosophy as a craft, the thing other than philosophy that I'm very good at is martial arts. And you can sometimes see these like one hour, two hour self-defense classes and they make they 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 really scare me because and i think non martial artists would say well something's better than nothing right and me as a specialist i'm very acutely aware that no something is not better than nothing because if you if you take up one of these that is if you take a bad introductory class which you have no ability to tell the difference about uh because you're a beginner or you you uh take the wrong thing from the introductory class then you end up in this kind of socratic issue where you think you have knowledge where you don't have knowledge you don't know that you don't know and i would i i almost recommend against these kind of two-hour self-defense seminars they teach in high schools in canada or you know people will sign up for because i think it almost makes you overconfident in a skill you don't have Uh, it makes you feel like you've learned something that's a craft that takes years to master and that overconfidence is more dangerous than uh, an awareness of your inability um, and that I think is maybe the most charitable comparison I could make. What, how do you, what do you think about that? I, I think that's fascinating. Yeah. I think that's, a, I, I might, um, I'll, I'll cite you, but I might use that analogy in future if we were talking about it. I think that's probably a key part of their concern. The, there is a constant awareness and a constant critique of, um, and there's there's even a stoic who says, I wish there could be a law brought in against it. People setting themselves up to be philosophers and talking about it, and they don't know what they're saying. And people go along and they listen to them and they think they understood it. Um, so I think I think that's a that's a, a fascinating comparison you've made. I think that that's a key thing. They are worried that, and you know, well, they they compare it to an egg, right? Stoicism. You can't separate it. You're like no, you you can't just pick and choose, and you can't just get, like it is a kind of comprehensive thing as they understand it, and so. There's this, I should say, and this would also maybe give context to it. As I said, the Romans were very interested actually in showing they knew about philosophy without getting overly devoted to it. But that's a problem, right? I I think this is probably actually the the warning Epictetus gives his students the most, actually, is he says, I think some of you are here just to learn some witty things to say at a banquet with a senator. 
or I, I think you're just here to show off. So when you go back home, people say, wow, he knows everything. And you don't. And you have you have absolutely, you, you're just here to learn intellectual knowledge without it changing anything about you. You just want to look smart. And you say, this isn't what it is doing. So the, because education was this kind of mark of elite status, you actually had lots of people chasing it, but without wanting to really do the actual work. So they, uh, it was so desirable because it was this kind of access into by day into elite status. Um, people search for it without truly actually searching for it. And, uh, and several of the people who visit Epictetus's school, he basically almost throws them out or basically says, I'm not talking, uh, I'm not. Actually, there's one, uh, Arian says there's a, a student who keeps coming along and sitting in his school and Epictetus just ignores him. And then finally, the student says, or the person who's listening says, why aren't you talking to me? And Epictetus says, because I know you're not really interested. Like, you know, go home. So I think that's also playing a part of it as well. Um, so that, um, why, why they're being so select and why they're so worried, because there's a great thirst for, just give me the cliff notes. I'm going to go home, I'm going to look smart, but I'm not really going to do the actual work. Yeah, I mean, you see that in martial arts. I won't turn this into a martial arts episode, but there is a uh, there's kind of fake black belts. There is we were talking about the the toga, you know, the 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 that that red coloring. You know, in, in jujitsu martial arts, we have belts, right? And people people want to badly be the black belt, so they will they will buy one without having it been given to them. There's this there's this interest in getting the symbolism without the effort required to get there. And I think anybody can recognize that in any um, craft or interest that they have. Um, Erland, this was, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I've really, really enjoyed it. And it's something that I'm trying to do. I, I know our listeners will really enjoy it. It's something I'm trying to do is round out my philosophical understanding with the historical, just, just uh, because there's that goal of better understanding stoicism in its time and place so that it can influence, you know, whatever we're doing now, this kind of modern stoicism, whether that is living it or just understanding it or, you know, appreciating it, it, it it's, it's better grounded by a more thorough history. And, and I really appreciate uh, the, the work that you're doing to push that um, and to provide that deeper understanding for those that have, really enjoyed this conversation or have, have, have listened to this point. Do you want to maybe speak a bit about what you're doing now, kind of um, the, the, your book, uh, any of your future projects where they can find more information about you? Yeah. So my, my next goal, which I've gathered all the research for it is, is to write an introduction to first, second century world from the vantage point of Epictetus. So uh, basically guiding people through that world and uh, seeing like, what was it like to be a child in, in the Roman Empire? And it's wonderful because Epictetus mentions the games they play. He mentions them um, play acting, you know, like I'm the gladiator, no, I'm the, you know, and, and stuff like this. And um, again, you can go to the Museum of Nicopolis and they have childhood games from that time you know, in, in, in the museum and things like that. Um, so I have all the notes on that, and that's my goal at some point is to, to bring that out. So an introduction to the first century world, actually particularly Nicopolis, because it, it's, because of the the grandeur of ancient Greece, it gets overlooked. But it is it's tremendously worthwhile doing about Nicopolis. So that that's what I'm doing. That will probably be quite a while before that site. I don't know 
putting that aside. Um, I, I do frequent different groups and occasionally I pop up. Uh, I do have a Substack, which is Epictetus and his world, which I haven't written on for quite a while because I've been so so busy, but um, they can find me there. And if I, if I do put up some material about Epictetus and his world, they can uh, find a few blog posts. But I've written on like um, the uh, Epictetus and the education of Roman slaves, uh, law and crime. So it was saying the discourse is prison, right? We get an idea in a head of prison. Uh, it wasn't like what we mean by prison. Um, and dress and appearance. He's very concerned about that. There's, there's reasons for that when you get into it. So um, the book and the Substack. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I, I really love the analogies you, you put. I think that's actually helped you grasp the point they're making as well. So thank you so much. Th thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. Until next time.